0: Hello and welcome to the Freight Fine Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Richard Moore, Vice President, Fleet Solutions for ChargePoint. Now, I'm pretty new to electric vehicles. I don't own one, and I've actually only driven an EV once. It was a great experience. I had a lot of fun. But I learned a lot today talking to Rich about EVs for both personal and commercial vehicles. Now, prior to joining ChargePoint, Rich spent over 25 years at Ryder in various positions, culminating in being Chief Technology Officer. So, he fully understands how to run and manage large commercial fleets. At ChargePoint, he's working with companies to ease that transition to EVs. In our conversation, we'll talk about the economics of electrification of both personal and commercial vehicles, the challenges and opportunities of transitioning, as well as when the tipping point might occur where there are more sales of electric than combustion engine-powered vehicles. Following my conversation with Rich, I'll be joined by Dr. enami to discuss the truckload market update. So, let's get started. Hi, Rich. Welcome to the Freight Fine Podcast. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. So, tell me about ChargePoint. What does it do, and what what are you involved with there? So, the
1: ChargePoint has been around for about 13 years now. So, it started as a as a charging and infrastructure company. It used to be known as a company called Coulomb Technologies about 12 years ago, and then was rebranded and went public under the name ChargePoint almost two years ago now. So, ChargePoint is a uh, is a mobility company that is in the hardware and software business to allow EV charging, either payments, processing, or the ability to be able to connect charging stations from different network providers for drivers. So basically, the operating company is to lower the cost of moving goods and services for
0: uh, transportation, whether it's car, truck, or bus. I have to say, ChargePoint is a much better name than Coulomb. That sounds like a founder's name. Yeah, it was. Right? Let's name it something after electrical engineering. Yeah, the ChargePoint
1: is definitely a much more clear, concise name of what
0: we do, for sure. If you could divide your business between uh, POVs or personally-owned vehicles versus fleet, which is mainly your focus, what's the percentage, roughly, in terms of customers or revenue? Is it 50-50? Or is it ninety ten? What What do you think?
1: No, it's it's heavily weighted to the to the per- personal opposite vehicles because that's where the vehicles are. Um, so if you look at the segment right now, kind of if you look at all the addressable markets um, on EV mm-hmm. right now, and and you take car versus you know all the fleet segments like bus and truck and you know last mile, middle mile, it's interesting. I, I came from an industry that was was always perceived as the index to the transportation industry, and then I came to a new industry. An EV that ends up being the index to how EV is moving. So it's interesting when we look at all of our segments how they're performing. We, we really are the index on how the EV
0: industry is is moving forward. So you come from uh, you alluded to it twenty years about at Ryder managing yep. assets uh, all combustion engine I assume or at towards the end did you have some electric vehicles in the fleets you were managing? We did. We we ran um
1: we ran a good mix of uh, hybrid and, you know, low emission vehicles, we didn't get zero emission vehicles and probably to the last two years of my career there. So I was there about 27 years, I ended my career there as the CTO. And I had all of the zero emission responsibility for the company around the new OEMs that were starting to launch electric vehicles. So whether it was Freightliner, or Navistar, or Volvo, or some of the non-traditionals, to test vehicles as they started to come out. So really in the last two years of my career, we started getting some early electric vehicles to adopt. And we made some early partnerships with some charging companies to try and figure out where, where our place in the market was going to be. So it was a it was a good transition from Ryder over to, tr- to ChargePoint.
0: So it's, it's a major change though, because Ryder is, is it a hundred-year-old company yet? It's yeah, got to be j- close.
1: Yeah, 90-plus-year-old yeah, company, yeah.
0: Yeah, so old company, well-established, everyone knows Ryder. To ChargePoint, which is it's been around for a little while, but still more of a startup. What was that transition like? Because you were at Ryder your entire career, pretty much. Is that a fair? Yeah, statement? I started when
1: I was nineteen at Ryder, and um, wow. did. did 27. You've got to be at least
0: what twenty-seven now? Yeah, I'm, I'm just just tapping thirty now, so. Yes, just tapping thirty for the second or third time. Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, it was it was a very unusual transition. I think um, the reason why I came to ChargePoint. You know, one, I, I fell in love with the management team at ChargePoint and the way they thought about the business and, and specifically our CEO, Pat, how he was starting to think about the fleet business. And, and when I was having early conversations with him on, on what this could look like from a fleet standpoint, you know, there's three things that I, I were kind of core competencies that I, I always um, kind of base my decisions on for fleets. So, you know, fleets are a tough business, you know, in 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 North America to adopt right. new technology. I, we went through the ELD change and it was really difficult. We went through the emission change in 07, it was really difficult. You know, then again in 09. So we've been through a lot of changes in 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 transportation. And then, you know, we, everyone got burned a little bit on natural gas, you know, on on uh, LNG and CNG back in the day. So I'm like I can't I can't go to a company and not have control over the transports feeling like they were making a bet that might, might not pay off. So there were three things that I made sure that were kind of core to charge point. And that's with the fleets of not having to move off existing technology, never leaving their TMS, their telematics provider, their fuel card provider, the core competencies that drives a lot of cost down in that business. I didn't want to have to bring in a software or hardware that would remove them from that. That was kind of competency okay. number one. And then making sure they had the same visibility, access, and control that they did when they were on liquid fuel. So that means, you know, same visibility of on-site fuel, whether it was a kilowatt or a gallon, same access to be able to have driver access and fuel card access, and same control being able to understand how your routes are going to come in, when the vehicles are going to be dispatched, and having that same amount of control around when those vehicles are going to be ready to go. So I've kind of, from a playbook standpoint, made sure that I was never impacting how the business has to change at their core. And then providing those three competencies were the things that when I when I decided to come over here, those were things that were also important
0: to the leadership team at ChargePoint when they were designing software and hardware. Well, let me, let me ask a question because maybe I missed one. Okay, first competency, you said, is not move off existing tech so they yeah. don't have to replace a bunch of systems. Second competency was they have to have the same or better, I assume, visibility to access yep. and control of their assets what was yeah. the third competency? So those are the, so visibility. So okay. being able to see your fleet,
1: where it is, when it, when it's ready, what's the status of it, the access, being able to access that information and be able to change it. And then the control, having the same control of that fleet they did with, you know, whether they were a wet hose or on site fuel. So those are three things that were, that were super important from a kind of running the business. The The first one is don't, Mess with these guys. They they've spent years trying to drive costs out of their business in an ultra competitive business. Transport is probably one of the most competitive businesses in the U.S. The margins are super slim, and and there's you know between regulation, between lawsuits, between you know running costs of vehicles. I mean, they, they have enough headwinds without having to deal with something brand new in the industry. So those were things that were really important. So. When I first started at ChargePoint, like my first 90 days, you know, I went right to how do I integrate with the fuel card companies faster? How do we get payments, you know, and integrations on the back end so it stays in their ERPs? How do we integrate with the telematics providers right out of the gate so they don't have to have a change in technology? You know, how do we work with the OEMs faster and able to give them hardware and software they can sell straight into the customer? So. Those are some of the things that we started to work on right out of the gate, right in my first
0: year here. So when you look at fleet, because it would seem if you break the different different uh, markets that you would have, one is personal yeah. vehicle, but then when you look at the commercial side, there's different types of fleets and different ways that can be done. You sure. could have you know drayage, you could have first mile, last mile, you know yep. where it's a little van, pedal routes and things like that. You have middle mile, and then you have the whole, I guess you could call it any kind of bus fleet would be similar to a, Last Mile, where it does a closed loop. Yeah, will school
1: bus, airport operations, yeah.
0: Because they all, the thing that I'm, I'm curious about, all of those in Last Mile pretty much are a day operation. They don't, they come back home every day. So their yeah. recharging cycle is kind of set at their home base. Or do you need them to be charging along the way?
1: No, I mean, just like, just like diesel and gas, the, the vast majority of fleets are, you know, with the exception of OTR, they're all back the same day. I mean yeah. the yeah. I mean, if you were able to aggregate the entire US freight market, with the exception of OTR, everyone's returned to home. At least yeah. daily. Yeah. So when you look at it, you know, that's why like if you look over the last ten years, really fifteen years, you know, on site fuel and wet hose has become extremely popular, right? And then, you know, aggregated fueling networks, either with Wax or Voyager, you know, one of the big fuel car companies, because you know they're fueling within proximity of where they return, or they're relying on on-site or wet hose to fuel when they are returned. There's not a, vi- a driver in the vehicle, and the reason why, it, with the exception of OTR, is we, you know, drivers have become so efficient, it didn't make sense to pay them the fuel anymore, and it's to sit and wait and fuel either back at the depot or on route. So most of those fueling is done without a driver, which was kind of perfect for electric, and and some right. of the early deployments like in yard tractors. So yard, yard tractors, I'm, I'm a huge fan of yard tractors and electric because they make sense for a bunch of reasons. You know, one, right. the, the, the TCO is probably there now. When you look at acquisition costs. TCO, total total,
0: total, total cost, cost of ownership. ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah So on yard tractors, the TCO is probably there because when you look at the nightmare problems we had as an industry around regeneration on yard tractors, the running cost was through the roof on yard tractors with the last emission change. So you take, you take a, an application where the vehicle really never leaves the yard anyways. Right. And you have onsite fuel where, you know, before they were getting diesel onsite or they're going across the street, you know, it was like the perfect application for electrification on yard tractors. So you look at, term, you know, ports and terminals and depots, if you can electrify a yard tractor now, it probably makes sense. And most yard tractors run to destruction. They don't run them to a, five or seven year
0: residual and try and turn them into a next one. That's, that's also the proving ground for autonomous. Correct. Now, do you, do you guys play with that? Or I guess you don't even need to play with that, do do you?
1: Okay. We do. We actually, we do a, we do a pilot with, um, there was a release last year with uh, our partnership with Gatic, who's doing some middle mile uh, autonomous. And then you probably would have seen it about a week or two weeks ago. We did an announcement or actually they did the announcement with us with EV which is an inductive charging company. Inductive is basically putting the charging in the ground. And that is a good that's a good use case to start talking about autonomous, right? Cuz if you don't have a person driving a vehicle and it returns to a, a waypoint, it needs to be able to charge and Inductive is a, a good solution for those autonomous type applications. So we've we've been doing a lot of this over over the last couple, you know, really over the last 2 years to look at, you know, piloting with autonomous, how do we help them on the charging side? Piloting with inductive, how do we help them on that charging side? And then um, yard tractors, you know, seem to be a great application for that.
0: No, that, that that makes a ton of sense. But so then if I was driving around, I don't have an electric vehicle myself, but if I had my Tesla or a Dodge Volt or whatever the different models are, would I see charge point stations on the highways? How big is the ChargePoint network in the United States?
1: So in the U.S., it's about 225,000 charging ports that are public and private available to ChargePoint customers, and there's about 465,000 available between our network and our roaming network, which is our all of our roaming partners that have EV stations open up for uh, public and private.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: So when you look at that, you know you you'll see ChargePoint. Everywhere. If you download the ChargePoint app right now, okay, okay, and you, you looked at the dots on the map, you'd see thousands of charging locations. Either that are our charging locations that we manage the software for, and the uh, and the operations and maintenance. We don't own them, but we manage that for our customer. And you'll see all of our roaming partners that roam with us on the ChargePoint app. So that that's Green Greenlots, Flow, all of those other charging competitors. You know, they roam with us and we have an agreement with each other that we don't hit each other with tariffs in between customers using it. So the goal, you know, from, from on the public side of the business, not necessarily on the fleet side, but on the commercial side of the business, the more charging ports, the better, because sure. it, it gives drivers the confidence to be able to charge where they, you know, eat, work, play and sleep.
0: So is there interoperability between all the different vehicles? Because I know Tesla has some yes. additional charges that only they can use. But so any vehicle can use, you're able to serve them?
1: Yeah. So, it, so Tesla specifically, you know, they, they've been on their North American Tesla standard for, you know, in North America for many years, but with Tesla app, you can bring an adapter to charge on any J 1772 AC plug. And then actually Tesla just released um, a Tesla a CCS connector so they can charge in any CCS port, any DC fast charging port um, around the country. So, the the whole market has has come together over years it, there was a okay. you know the chatmo was the other connector that was for the the Nissan years ago chatmo is slowly bleeding out in in the US okay. and mostly it's going to be you know a J1772 which is the standard AC adapter in North America a CCS1 which is your standard DC connector for all of North America and then you'll have Tesla um, with their connector and their 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 chargers They've actually started rolling out some uh, public charging on their own superchargers to open up CCS charging. So I think that happened uh, about a month or two months ago.
0: So you see, so standardization is is happening in this field. But you raise something interesting about the other uh, players in here that you have roaming. You're allowed to roam. It reminds me of ATMs back exactly. in the '90s where every ATM had you know dollar fifty charge, but then that's that's fading away, except in some really bad bars. And we want to make sure that never that never started. In North America. Yeah. So we you know, the, the customer's
1: ability to charge, regardless of the network they choose to use, everyone should roam together and provide the best customer experience. Whether they're they're using an EVGO app and they come to a charge point station or they have a charge point app and they go to an EVIGO station, that experience should be the same and the price should be the same. And you shouldn't be penalized for using someone else's app to charge on that station.
0: Is it again? I'm really ignorant here. I mean, the last uh, vehicle I bought was a ten-year-old truck, right? And so it's I'm 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 not on the cutting edge of electric vehicles, but uh, where do you see the priority of where you put these stations? Are they in urban areas where the most of the EVs are being used, or do you try to go out to the more rural areas so that people will adopt them more? Is there is there a decision there of how you set up your network?
1: It's it's an interesting answer. I think on the commercial side of the business. Right. you know companies are deploying charging where it makes sense for their business if they're putting it in a, in a public setting so restaurants or hotels or you know anywhere where where you are drawing people to your business ev charging makes sense if you're going to get the the visits you know the walk-ins from the charging experience now from a from a straight convenience standpoint you know strategically placing dc stations you know along highway routes that's that's the NEVI program that was released so you know over the next 5 years there's a there's every state in the US will be deploying charging strategies based off you know off highway access um, for for fast charging DC charging that's going to that's going to put an enormous amount of fast charging um, across the US but at, sure. at the same time you know, and I'm, I'm I guess I'm a new EV driver. I've been, you know, two years. Um, yeah. So I have, a, I have a Mach-E and I, I purposely got a, a Mach-E so I could, you know, use the public networks, not not just be spoiled and go to a Tesla supercharger. And that's the only thing you use. So I think I can tell you that, you know, the vast majority of my charging gets done at home. So 90 okay. percent of my charging yep. gets done at home. And with the 300 miles I have, there's plenty of range to go anywhere I need to over the course of uh, over the course of the day.
0: But you raised the uh, again. I'm, I'm much a novice here, but you said something a few minutes ago where you would charge the same. Is the price of charging the same across the United States? It's not like gas where it's, it differs by region, by state, by taxes. No, it
1: differs by region and by state. So most site owners get to, to choose what their charging price will be either per kilowatt or based on time. So there's still a couple of states in the U.S. where you can't charge for charging specifically on a per kilowatt basis. You have to charge really? for time use on that charger.
0: Why? What's the thought behind that? Is that is that something that's in flux still? Yeah, it's just
1: old utility regulations where, you know, someone can't act as a utility and charge for energy. There, there's some old wow. state laws that, that affect that.
0: Interesting. Now, there's recent in the news that Shell is acquiring an EV charge station uh, network, of Volta, for yeah. previously earlier this year. Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? How is that changing the competitive mm-hmm. landscape for you all? Well, I think anytime a charging company can be
1: more stable um, financially and, you know, have someone that's, you know, has the financial wherewithal to maintain charging stations, keep high uptime, it's always a good thing when you look at it from mix of AC and DC, you know, what we see are behaviors of people charge in a 30 minute, you know, kind of 30 minute retail environment. They, they want right. wherever they go, you know, if it's not if they're not sleeping there, they're, they're generally in a 30 minute retail behavior. So are okay. you going to get enough energy to justify the 30 minutes there? Um, so I think when you look at it, what becomes important then is a mix of AC and DC. So that that, you know, that company had had rolled out, you know, an advertising model tied to AC and DC charging. And then so we'll see how that progresses moving forward. But I I don't think it's a bad thing that they got acquired. I mean, certainly they'll be able to maintain the, the, you know, all the work that was done putting in those charging stations originally and be able to maintain an uptime for their
0: customers. So it's really an interesting thing. It's kind of flipping the model because for for gasoline, I know when I'm driving, I want to get in and out as fast as possible. I will rarely go and buy a coffee from them. If I'm EV, I, if I have thirty minutes, do you think we're going to see a a cultural change that some of these stations will become more restauranty like or something that makes you want to spend thirty minutes in it? I think that the ones that will succeed long term are the ones that you know create a thirty
1: minute retail environment for their customers. So I, I think, you know, it really depends on the, the type of application. So I think th- there's a standard, right? You, you need to have access to a restroom. You need to have, you know, a lit parking lot and a safe environment. You know, th- there's some kind of some some core competencies with charging that are super important. Aside that, I think what you're going to see years from now are, you know, companies are going to really embrace on what, what is the driver experience that they want to bring people into their stores. And in that 30 minute retail Kind of environment in the future when you do need to charge in the wild you want to go a place where you know you're comfortable you have some type of resources available for you and and you have the charging speeds that get you back on the road in 30 minutes and the rest you should rely on ac charging because you're gonna you're gonna sleep there you're gonna go to the movies you're gonna be there for hours or you know, you're, you're in a place where you're, you're going away. So, I mean, I think from, from point A to point B, you want to be as most efficient as possible. But when you're there for a long time, you want to, you want to charge, you know, slow, which is, you know, slow is the best, you know, in every situation. I mean, definitely at home, you know, and definitely where you're, where you're going to be for many hours. But when you're going from point A to point B, you want to be able to fuel at a reasonable rate and get back on the road.
0: Yeah, so I love it. Is that a technical term? In the wild, when you're not at yeah. home, is that pretty much what that? Yeah, means, you're in think? the wild.
1: You, you, who knows? It's the un, it's the unknown, right? The, when you're in the yeah. wild.
0: There you go. So let's go to fleets now, which is main your main focus. What have you seen has been the biggest hurdles or speed bumps to wider adoption of fleets to electric vehicles?
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a mix. There's certainly vehicle availability has a big impact. We're, we're seeing really good progress on transit. Um, right now, uh, the low-no funding was put in place many years ago um, through the Federal Transportation Administration. So, you know, buses, transit buses, specifically in, in North America and Europe, have made really good progress. There's a number of transit agencies that have already um, converted to a portion of their fleet to electric. Kind of step down from there, y- you're, you're seeing yard, tra- yard tractors, you know, whatever you call them, yard tractors, yard dogs, you know, spot sure. trucks, wh- wh- whatever your terminology is. We're seeing those, you know, adopt and convert at a high pace because they make sense. They, you know, Operationally, they make sense, you know, from a cost structure, they make sense. And kind of, then you go really low from there. Then you, you go all the way down to class one and two. You're starting to see that the vans and the pickup trucks, you know, last mile type of spot, you know, type of uh, rates, they, you know, you're seeing that kind of launch now. So you're, we're kind of bookending, you know, the fleet segment right now, really, really heavy and really, really light. And then you're going to start to fill in the middle of all the different types of class, you know, so class three and four, you're going to start to see, you know, cab overs under 14,000 pounds come out. Then you're going to jump up to, you know, under 33,000 pounds. And then you, you see all the, um, all the articles on the class eights that are coming out, either from Nikola, Freightliner, uh, Navistar, Volvo, you know, PACCAR, every major OEM, has a class eight vehicle, or has a roadmap to multiple class eight
0: vehicles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: they're kind of meet in the middle. It's really interesting to see the segment how it's coming together. You know, I, I bought a company about uh, about two years ago now, or about a year and a half now. I bought a telematics company out in Amsterdam called Vericity, and they specialize in the bus segment. Um, so when I first got the charge point, it was a it was a very attractive company to look at because they had done some really interesting work on tying bus telematics together with charge management systems, with depot operations. So, you know, you take one of the oldest industries in the US, the transit area. Right. And you, you start to bring new technology in there. They did a really nice job of bringing it together
0: for the transit agency. So it's, it's worked out really well on the transit side of the business. That must be a totally different market because that's everyone. Are there any private transit companies in the United States anymore? They're all mainly local government. Oh, Europe, right?
1: Europe, you have some PTOS, but in US, they're they're all owned by the own and run by the municipalities. Yeah,
0: yeah, it makes sense because the economies of scale are there, and having multiple ones. I mean, it used it started that way. Yeah, not knowing anything about
1: transit when I came over from from Ryder to here, it it was oh it was
0: super interesting
1: to to get to know these folks in this industry because it. Man, they have this dialed in as far as maintenance and uptime. I, they run this thing like a well oiled machine, you know, as far as keeping those, because they got to keep those buses in place for, you know, 12 to 20 years in some cases. Right. So, I mean, right. you talk about spare parts and training and on site technology and the way they have to keep the uptime on the vehicles. It was really impressive to learn about that business and, and really how similar it was to the heavy duty trucking business where, you know, where obviously where I came from.
0: Yeah, and they have a whole bunch of other challenges there as well. And if you look back at history, look at how uh, subways got installed in Boston and New York around the turn of the century, uh, previous century. There's a lot of things because they were all a bunch of private companies that eventually right. had to all come together. And there were no standards, any of the stuff. And there's a lot of parallels I think you can make between AV and EV and that adoption rate. We'll see how it how it comes along. But do you so do you find yourself trying to be a, a proponent to companies? to say, hey, you need to convert your fleets uh, to electric vehicle. And then by the way, you, we can help you with charging points. Or are you on a different way of doing it? That's
1: definitely not my role. I okay. don't want to tell companies what to do. Um, you know, they, they all are moving in. So you, you look at kind of the transports from kind of in a macro environment right now. Th- there's um, really three kind of pressures for these companies for the most part on why they're why they're starting to transition. They're either getting pressure from their board, they're getting pressure from their boss, or they're getting pressure from their customer, or all three. So when you kind of look at what what is the what is the reason they're starting to transition, it, you know, ESG is a major part of it, of course, but none of the transports that I know are going to w- willingly make a bet for no reason at all. Absolutely. When they're when they're getting when they're getting now over the line, it's become someone's job to adopt a new technology. My role is to make sure they don't get they don't get hurt in charging infrastructure and software that the stuff works the way it's supposed to work that they I don't disrupt their business and then all I want to happen is if they whether they bring in one truck or five trucks I want to make sure they're as successful as possible so they don't run into a problem where they feel like they made a bad decision so you know I our job is to work with the OEMs to make sure the vehicles and the chargers have interoperability together. Our yeah, job is yeah. to work with the customer, making sure that the pipe gets in the ground as as cost-effective as possible. We'll make sure that they take advantage of any grants or incentives that are available to them as an organization. And then we'll supply them with hardware that is upgradable and repairable in the field that never has to be ripped out of the ground. So when you kind of look at it, we, we really look at it same way you look at a truck is we're trying to maintain the lowest cost of ownership on that hardware over a 10 or 15 year period, because that equipment's got to last. They, they, they can't run into a situation where they buy some hardware and they try and charge their vehicles and they have downtime issues or every time something breaks, it's got to be a major overhaul. So we design equipment um, that is on a, on a fru level. So Every every component on our hardware can be replaced in the field. It's a field replaceable. Ah, so whether it's a power module or it's a screen or it's a cable, you don't need a master electrician to maintain our equipment on your yard. So some of the transit agencies, we teach them how to be self-maintainers because eventually they're going to maintain their own vehicles. They're, well, they maintain their own vehicles. They're going to, want to maintain their own equipment. So right. we design our design principles are, are to make it very easy for anyone to maintain equipment to maintain the highest uptime. Whether that's me doing the maintenance, so we already know when that when that charger has a problem. When we dispatch a technician, we already know what's wrong with that charger. We're bringing a part with us to repair it. We're not sending someone out to diagnose it to try right, and figure right. out what's wrong with it, and then have to have it turn into two or three service calls. So it, we've we've taken a very very transportation approach way on how we think about charging and infrastructure. You want to know yeah. what are your common faults? What are your fastest moving parts? How do you repair those parts? And then what are your standard repair times on those components?
0: So you mentioned three constituencies that are forcing a lot of this to board: your bosses and your customers. Yeah. And that—that's a story. I, when I talk to anyone who's involved in ESG stuff, yeah, or DEI, it, that's where the outside pressure. What yeah. about from the drivers? Is the, are the drivers a negative force or a positive force to adoption to EV for fleets? definitely
1: a po- definitely a positive force. Did that surprise you? Um, not really, because I, I guess I'm a little bit. Um, I, I had a I had a head start. I, we did an early EV pilot. Okay, man, almost ten years ago, up in Boston with a with a major customer
0: up there, and they got was that with Staples. It, actually, it was with WB Mason. Okay, because go ahead, I have another story. Go ahead. So they, they got one of the
1: very they got one of the very first workhorse vehicles. I, I think it was almost ten years ago, or at least eight years ago. And I went out. I went out for the two days with the driver to go make deliveries um, up in Boston, and it was all downtown Boston, throughout the universities and and you know mm-hmm. law offices and, and uh, business areas. And the, the the driver, I was asking him, you know, well, how was the transition from you know the diesel truck to this truck? And he said it, it wasn't even. He's like, without even hesitating, he's like, "There's no difference. I'm never going to go back." And there were a couple of reasons for it. <laughs> well, it was it was really cold in Boston that winter. He said yeah. that the vehicle heats up faster and anything that's invented before, because the, the heater did work good. But he he loved the regenerative braking on the vehicle, liked the power on the vehicle, and loved how quiet the vehicle was um as he was operating. So when he kind of when he got that in in and I think he had the vehicle for almost a full year at that point when he was driving it. And he said it's it's night indifference, the the night and day difference the way he was operating that vehicle. And then we ran some early pilots on some early Class Eights out in California, um, and we had some dedicated uh, drivers that were uh, rider dedicated that had those for dedicated customers where we had some back and forth right. routes between warehouses sure, sure. it was probably under sixty miles each way, and the driver was just couldn't believe, you know, the the constant whining and screaming of the engine. And, you know, the braking, everything was different about the vehicle and, you know, kind of take the fueling aside, which most of them don't fuel their vehicle and they never did before. So if they get a full vehicle every morning and they know they're going to make their route, then it's kind of a non-event. So they got all the benefits of having the EV without having to deal with the hassle of actually plugging it in. Um, So it was really interesting to see that the, the drivers are the first one to adopt newer technology and we're gonna get and you're gonna get some pushback across the way. I remember going from manual to automatic transmissions, how much how much heat we were getting, you Yeah, know, that we yeah. we didn't we didn't have any manual tractors anymore. And I'm like, but it only took a year really for the driver to say, hey, th- this does make a lot of sense yeah, to go to an yeah. automatic it, transmission.
0: So we did a project years ago with with Staples. And the thing that they found out is that initially the drivers were that most hesitant, say we don't want to do this, you know, don't mess with my truck. But as soon as you switch them over within a week, it's like, don't you dare take this away from me! Right. Yeah, You're going to pull it out of my dead, cold fingers. Right. I'm so, the same
1: way. Like I, I was a I you know, when we got the when we got the car, uh, we replaced my wife's older vehicle for the the ei I'll never not have an EV until I'm gone. There's it yeah. just doesn't make any sense not to like. The vehicle's full every morning. It. You know we, we when we do road trips we don't have problems charging now do we plan a little better sure of course we do but it's it is it is a great experience it's a it's a great drive it's a it's just it's not even like you know you're not even like oh I'm gonna save seven dollars today or twelve dollars say you just don't even think about it you're like oh I spend you know two dollars and forty cents charging at night at home and it's all included in my utility bill and my vehicle's at eighty percent every single morning I wake up it, it's yeah. just you don't even think about it anymore
0: but the, the, there's hesitancy for some people, especially if you're in more rural areas sure. or very cold. Um, but I think that's uh, as as more charging stations. I think the adoptions are going to only increase. I mean, you look at all the manufacturers, and no one is putting money into R and D for combustion engines. Yeah, right. I, mean, I think we
1: were uh, U.S. was what seven percent of auto sales last year. were EV, I think you know. So I mean, you're that five percent was really hard to get to, right? Because there wasn't yeah. very many vehicles, very many OEMs. But I, you know whether you watch the Super Bowl or you watch the world series or any major sporting
0: event, like every third commercial is an EV car. It, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing. Cause they're all crypto two years ago. So, you know, I don't know if you want to look at Super Bowl ads as a, as a metric that's, let's, let's hold off on that. But let me ask a question, go back to fleet. So you talk, it makes sense for the, uh, within the yard. That makes sense. Um, last mile seems to make sense where you definitely are coming home. That brings in drayage, I assume is another big key target. Because you're constantly coming back. What about the middle mile, which is the biggest chunk of transportation? At least trucking, three hundred plus billion. What What is stopping that, or what do you think will have to happen for a widespread adoption of middle mile trucks? Yeah, so three three through six is a little challenging
1: um, for a number of reasons. So one, the weight of the vehicle. So ah. under twenty six thousand pounds, which is you know non you know regulated but non C D L. You know, the unladen weight of a 26,000 pound vehicle on diesel was probably, you know, between seven and 12,000 pounds, depending if it was a reefer or a dry van. So you're a little bit challenged um, on the weight on that vehicle to size the batteries um, to the range that makes sense. Over 26,000 pounds, so 26 to 33,000 pounds, you know, class B. You know, when you're running a 33,000 pound vehicle, your unladen was typically 12 to 14 to 15,000 pounds unladed. You can get there on the weight, but then you're now introducing class B vehicles um, to typically un- an unregulated driver market or uh, un- unclass B market, still regulated for hours of service and all that stuff. But they didn't right, require right, right. a class B license. So that's kind of sweet spot in the middle is going to be one of the harder to address. So I think what's going to happen as you know, batteries are going to continue to get better. Certainly the, the the E-axles are going to continue to get better and more efficient on that class. And then you're going to see a, a wider adoption on that vehicle. But it, it really comes down to weight. On Class 8, you know, the U.S. has a um, an exemption um, for the heavier Class 8 vehicles if they're EV. I believe it's another 10,000 pounds they give you. So you can go from eighty thousand uh, GVW to ninety thousand GVW. So you can add another ten thousand pounds. So you can get you can I claw back the weight of those batteries. Yeah,
0: is that new? Is that new? So we're. Uh, I
1: think it's been in place for a, I think it's been in place for a couple of years now. The the ten thousand pound exemption,
0: for Class A, because because the funny thing is you're trading off two very different things. I've been on yeah. um, size and weight committees uh, as an advisor for the government and. I'd rather go through waterboarding than sit through another meeting like that because to increase the weight or add an axle, you get you know mothers against big trucks. You get the rail, everything opposed to it. So I'm shocked yeah. that they were able to add 10,000 pounds because you're trading off, theoretically, safety because the heavier the truck, right, then the, you know, the more damage that it can do. That, that's, yeah. I, I was not aware of that. That's, do you see that as helping the adoption? Has it helped? It seems like it's still pilots at this point for the Class 8. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think that there's not a lot of Class 8s and I think what you'd say traditional mass deployments, certainly, you know, at the volumes you're going to see in diesel right now. So I think every bit helps as they're trying to, you know, dial in batteries and weight and how the vehicles are going to perform. Now, on the electric vehicles, you know, with regenerative braking, you know, it's a completely different animal on class eight now with, you know, elimination of Jake brakes and, you know, regular disc brakes. I mean, regenerative braking makes a huge difference on, on the heavy
0: duty. Tell me more about that. I don't know as much about regenerative braking. What does that do?
1: So the vehicle slows the minute that you unengage the gas. So essentially when you pull your foot off the pedal, the all of that energy from the vehicle slowing down is returned to the battery. So it's, 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 it not only slows the vehicle, but it returns all that energy to the battery and it improves the efficiency of the vehicle. So in you know, what we preach on early fleets is one pedal driving is the is the healthiest way to drive for the driver, for the vehicle, and for the efficiency. So mm. that means, you know, and, and most EV uh, car owners make that transition fairly quick, right? You hardly ever touch the brake. The vehicle just slows naturally because of the regenerative braking. So whether you're coming to a stoplight or you're going down a hill or you're, you know, you know, pulling into a parking lot, the vehicle just slows that over onto the heavy duty side. You you would have gotten that on, you know, the old engine brakes on the Jake brakes. Right. The, right, the two right. four Jake brakes. That that was the the premise behind that was the exhaust was returning back into the vehicle and slowing the slowing the truck down. So it's much more it's it's much more efficient on EVs, um, especially on the medium and the heavy duty side.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. Let me ask about just electricity in general, um, because as I was looking at this, I was talking to some people from a major CPG manufacturer who are going through the electrification process of their fleet as well. They do a lot of uh, direct store delivery. And they mentioned something that the diseconomies of scale for buying electricity, which I thought only existed in full truckload, where if if I buy more on a lane, I might end up paying more per unit because you can't stockpile it. Electricity is the same. If you wanna just buy a lot all of a sudden, you pay more per whatever megawatt or whatever you, you do. Does that affect the strategy?
1: Yeah, so demand demand charges are are, are a penalty for not appropriately planning your, your energy use or your energy. That's one way of so saying the utility, it's utilities say basically you, you you went over your allowance, you know, that, that you told us you were gonna use and you will pay a demand charge because you know with the utilities it, it's it's important for the utilities to understand what energy is needed in within their network so they can plan right, accordingly right. for their energy load so the way to mitigate that is is have demand charges for individuals or companies that exceed that in spikes so the The utilities have plenty of energy they they, they all I I haven't, you know, two years of working on this now and working with hundreds of utilities, they they have an unbelievable amount of information on how much demand that they're going to need, you know, within a within a service area, if they had better visibility to demand that was coming, they'd be able Mm -hmm. to plan for that demand accordingly. So the the biggest thing for utilities is getting that visibility. So the way to avoid demand charges is we have software that will basically set a hard cap on that site. So whatever, the the hard caps, 200kW or 300kW, we'll never allow that site to go over that that demand cap. So we, we set kind of the hard deck on that. So basically, we'll protect the customer from that. And we have a distributed charging solution that allows you to share charging from one to another to another to another to another. So that the energy okay. can roll from vehicle to vehicle. and I don't have to worry about just prioritizing one vehicle in one spot. I can prioritize that Not same it. vehicle on any spot. So whether they park in you know spot a or part, spot Z, the charger recognizes that vehicle is the one that needs to be prioritized and it'll it'll move energy to that vehicle without throwing the whole site over the demand cap on that site. So hard to do hard to do in public because you have to throttle. But in private behind the fence, you you can you can plan your charging you know, based on your entire fleet. So in, in public settings where you need 150 kw and the next car pulls up, you're not gonna throttle you're not gonna tell that car we well, got to wait 15 minutes, right, or you're gonna have right. to fuel. If there's two spots available, you'd expect both spots to be charged at at the rate that is advertised. So you have to do that a number of different ways. You can either bring in a microgrid and you can you can shave that demand by having battery storage on that yard. So saying don't go to the utility to get that extra peak. Take it from the microgrid and combine it with the utility so you can you can flatten out your curve of electricity, or you have to throttle the site. So if if right. you haven't if you haven't sized your site appropriately or you haven't you haven't sized your demand appropriately, you get hit with a with a penalty.
0: Well, do you get involved with like uh, companies that are com- real estate designing yeah, these DCs? Because I imagine you'd yeah. want to be heavily involved with this because el- setting up for electric versus diesel will be a lot of differences, aren't there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we do a lot
1: of planning on the. So we do a lot of demand analysis for the customer uh, around looking at what their demand curves are going to be based on the number of vehicles they have now and what they're going to have you know, a year from now and two years from now so we can appropriately size the site for the customer. Even if they're not putting a charger in the ground You know, for a year or two years, we'll start by doing demand analysis for them so we can right-size the service that's coming in.
0: Makes sense. Okay, last questions for you. When do you see the tipping point happen? When will there be new, more new cars sold that are EVs than combustion engine and the same thing for fleets? When will the new purchases be more than 50% of the buys in any year? Five years, 10 years, next year?
1: Yeah, I think obviously autos faster um, for sure. You're at seven percent now. I think that that continues to you know pick up at a substantial pace. So I mean, I think you know by 2030, you're you're game over on the auto side. It's it's over. I mean, I think you'll see more more cars being sold that are that are either uh, full battery electric or hybrid by 2030 than than what you're going to see on on gas.
0: Do you think we'll still see hybrids? Or are those like those kind of mixed things. I think you will. I think you know. I, I think it's a weird it's, it's a weird technology to kind of have yeah. a
1: gas engine and a battery at the same time. But I, I think you know some of the auto manufacturers feel like people want that flexibility. And it's interesting because you know you're kind of not you got one foot in each technology, so you still have the pain associated with a with a you know a gas yeah. car with oil changes and services and. And then you get, you know, none of the real benefits of having an electric car, which is, you know, it's with the exception of being full every morning, but with a limited range. So I think, you know, you, you, I think people will get more confident as the technology yeah. gets out and gets better. And and also price points a big deal. So when you look at um, by 2025, 20, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, you're going to see a lot more used vehicles for sale. So yeah. used electric vehicles. So the, the entry point to electric um, will be more accessible. So that kind of that, that price point of a brand new EV to where it intersects with a used EV, you know, and you still get all the benefits of having a lower cost of ownership for a consumer. When those two kind of intersect, you know, it's game over because now you have, you know, 20% of the cars that were sold in the previous five model years now
0: coming up for sale. So
1: now right. you have a, a big a big group of used vehicles coming in. It makes it much more accessible. Do
0: Do, do people hang on to EVs longer? Or is it too early to tell? Is the market too nascent?
1: I think it's too early to tell. I think they're they're made to they're made to hang on to them for longer. That's for yeah. sure. You know, when you look at it, you know, especially when you look on the heavy duty truck side, you know, yeah. most of the industry on the heavy duty truck side did not run to destruction. So it was not UPS and FedEx and the post office where they run vehicles until right. you know that essentially they get crushed, right? so that that's a run to destruction methodology food and beverage companies you know on the on the beverage side run to destruction yard tractors run to destruction and then a lot of the of the parcels so that, uh, delivery companies run to destruction that is like the perfect application for an ev because you should run that all the way to that you know it there's no residual life left on it and and it's fully it's fully cooked so what will be interesting when you ask me the adoption on the heavy duty side the adoption on the heavy duty side will pick up when when transports have confidence in the residual of that vehicle, that it's going to be worth five years from now, they can predict what that vehicle is going to be worth five years from now. So on a diesel truck, if I go out and buy a $160,000 tandem axle day cab, I can bet you within $5,000 what that residual is going to be five years from now. Given any type of economic situation, I will get within five to $10,000 what that vehicle is going to be worth. We know where the residual is going to be. There's tons of data and in the, in the freight industry and in the transport industry predict that. When we can get there on electric vehicles, medium and heavy, then it's over. Because then you know you can make a bet on that equipment on what you're going to do and on that investment you're going to make. Because these are big CapEx decisions that companies are
0: making. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they've made some, some bad decisions. We talked about natural gas. And so yeah. there's been a lot of exploration. But it's funny, you mentioned the hybrid. That reminded me of like, when switching to landlines, uh, when we had landlines, I, I my wife, and I, we have two houses, one what, like a weekend place. We don't have a landline anywhere. I haven't had a landline in the house for fifteen years. Every so maybe it. it's just getting comfortable with it. Because for a while there, you weren't, you had to have a landline for nine one one. But now right. that's changed. I wonder if hybrids going to be eventually fade away because it's once people to get enough trust in the EVs. For sure. Well, Rich, thank you. I really learned a lot today. I, like I said, I'm a neophyte to EVs, and so I, I've driven a Tesla once from a buddy of mine, and I, I didn't want to give it back to him, but uh, I found myself going way too fast on a road I shouldn't have been going as fast because it just <laughs> the pickup was ridiculous.
1: It is. It is, a guilt, it is a guilty pleasure. That's for sure. It's a it's a heck of a lot of fun. That, that's for uh, that's for sure. But uh, thanks a lot. I learned a lot today. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Happy to uh, happy to bring into the bubble bath of EVs a little bit at a time if you ever make it out
0: to California we'd love to love to host you for a little while oh that'd be that'd be great okay everyone please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Enom EU
2: Welcome to the over the road truckload market update for May 18th, 2023. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are down 1%, spot rates down half a percent, replacement rates negative 9%. This means that new contract rates are about 9% below the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are down 4%, spot rates down 3%, and replacement rates negative 13%. In a model, active rates are down 4%, spot rates flat, and replacement rate is negative 5%. Finally, on the flatbed, active rates are down 6%, spot rates flat, and the replacement rates positive 3%.
0: So it seems like the market is still soft and staying soft. What do you think is happening?
2: Yeah, I think that actually the contract rates are, you know, quite steadily dropping Uh, and Mm -hmm. it's not too much off from, uh, you know, anecdotally, we are hearing from our our shippers. Uh, I think at this point in time, the contract carriers are trying to keep, you know, keep the business uh, so that there is no churn uh, from their side that they have to deal with.
0: So so we're still in an inverted market with spot below contract. But how is the gap doing? Is it is it getting bigger or is it starting to shrink?
2: It's still holding uh, around the same. It's about 40 cents on the van side. Uh, So the spots cheaper, 40 cents uh, than the contract. And uh, on the reefer side, it's about 55 cents uh, spots below contract.
0: Which is going down faster, Enam? Are the active rates going down faster than the spot rates? Are they both going down? It seems like uh, demand is falling faster than, than capacity.
2: What's going on there, you think? I think demand is having an effect as well, especially because by this time, we are generally it picks up. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that mm-hmm. it's not picking up. In in certain industries, it's picking up, uh, like the, you know, the DYI projects kind of areas, it's picking up. Uh, but generally, overall, it's it's very, very sluggish demand. So I think uh, with that, the, the capacity that coming in, I think is cannot hold. Uh, so I think, but... From rates-wise, both are dropping. Spots are dropping as well as contracts are dropping.
0: And it, does it seem like they're dropping at the same rate, or is either one of them slowing down at all, or is it still pretty much steady state from previous weeks?
2: In this, this time's update, I'm seeing spots slowing down a little bit more than contract, whereas contract is just on a, on a you know sliding scale. It's just coming consistently down.
0: Got it. Okay. Last question. Fuel. This is a, a, a bright light, right? First time that fuel dropped below four dollars a gallon since the the uh, invasion of the Ukraine. What, what's going on?
2: Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I think it's a it's a good welcome uh, for the shippers as well as uh, even for own operators who are you know who get uh, you know uh, caught in the in the broker. Um, uh, in between. So I think um, overall, I think it's good news for, for everybody to to be in, uh, paying about 45 cents uh, per mile after a long time, where we were almost paying 78, 79 cents uh, at the peak. Right. All right.
0: Well, on that good news, I uh, guess that concludes this week's Truckload Market Update. Thanks, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Inami e. Ayoub and myself, Chris Kaplish, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freight Vine or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.capless at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freight Vine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.